Will AI become conscious? President Biden has just unveiled a new executive order on AI, the US government's first action of its kind, requiring new safety assessments, equity and civil rights guidance, and research on AI's impact on the labor market. With this governance in place, can tech companies be counted on to do the right thing for humanity? Susan Schneider is the founding director of Florida Atlantic University's Center for the Future Minds. Schneider is an author, scholar, and educator who writes about the nature of the self and the minds, especially from the vantage point of issues in philosophy, AI, cognitive science, and astrobiology. Before opening the Center for the Future Minds, she held the chair with NASA and the Distinguished Scholar Chair at the Library of Congress. She's now working on projects related to advancements in AI policy and technology, drawing from neuroscience research and philosophical developments. Susan Schneider, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. And so you're going to share a passage from your book, Artificial You, AI in the Future of Your Mind. This set of the passage you're going to share. Sure. I'd be glad to. I'm actually sharing the very beginning of the book, which is a thought experiment, and it sort of gets people thinking about the issue. So here goes. Suppose it is 2045, and today you're at shopping. Your next stop is the Center for Mind Design. As you walk in, a large menu stands before you, and it lists brain enhancements with funky names. Hivemind is a brain chip allowing you to experience the innermost thoughts of your loved one. Zen Garden is a microchip for Zen Master level meditative state. Human Calculator gives you the savant level mathematical abilities that you felt you needed. What would you select, if anything? Enhanced attention, Mozart level musical skills. You can order a single enhancement or a bundle of several. So, you know, I pivot and ask the audience what they would do. And then I return to this later in the book to see if they change their minds. It's hard to know. I think I would be like, I'll follow you, said the wise man as he walked behind. <laughs> you go ahead and implant first and I'll take maybe next generation technology. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't want to be the first one. It's like with that cryonic procedure, you know, people are doing it now where they're freezing their brains and bodies for eventual revival. But it wants to be the first one we're alive, right? So concerning that thought experiment, I actually have a lot of philosophical concern, well beyond just the joke that who would want to be first with that, right? And one of them is indeed the concern that even if we stipulate that the procedure works in being able to replicate all of your mental abilities and all of your behaviors fools everybody into believing it's really you. There's a deep philosophical and scientific question here about whether the phenomenon of consciousness, which is that felt volume experience, can truly be replicated in a sort of silicon-based or other microchip-based instantiation. And we really don't know the answer to that question yet. Indeed. And going back to those basic philosophical questions, before we ask about AI and what we can do with AI, just on a personal level, who is Susan Schneider? You know, how do you define your sense of self? What makes you who you are, your perception? How do you know you're conscious? Ooh, very good. Okay. So let's see, who am I? Well, do you want biographical information or do you want just sort of the deep question about who we are? 
I think it's combined, isn't it? We can combine. Okay. So let's see. I'm a professor of philosophy. I also am a mother, which, you know, is something that's very important to me. And I have just always been interested in burning questions. And I sort of never stop with topics. So my problem, or maybe it's a gift, I don't know, but it's kind of a problem, is that I really love taking on new things. So like right now I'm writing interpretation of quantum mechanics without being qualified to do so. I was the NASA chair in astrobiology with NASA. I did three years of work on the future of intelligence system. So in a way, being the type of person who's endlessly interested in different topics can lead to really fun things. I'm also very worried about the future of humanity now. Maybe that's an outgrowth of being a parent. I have three teenagers. Now they're young adults. And I, I do worry a lot about where AI is headed. And we are at a really interesting point in technology. And it's sort of an honor to be alive right now to witness all of this. But to go back to consciousness, well, yeah, that is a key aspect of my sense of life. And it always bothers me when people haven't thought about it. Like I asked my husband the other day, how could people go through life without really thinking about or appreciating the fact that they're conscious beings. So let me say what consciousness is, that felt quality of experience. So whenever you smell the aroma of your espresso or you enjoy a piece of music or even feel just being embodied, like for example, right now you and I both feel the pressure of the seat as we're sitting on it, we hear background noise in the room. And we weren't even necessarily aware of these things until I called our attention to it. But all of those things are within the sort of field of our consciousness, even if they're on the periphery. So consciousness is that felt quality of experience. And it really is what it is to be a lot, to be present. And notice that it's always with us whenever we're awake and it's even there when we're dreaming. We never escape it. It can be terrible. One can feel tremendous pain and suffering. And the reason we feel that is that we are conscious beings. Indeed, there's so much about consciousness and, and there's different varieties that we're, we're not aware of and it comes down to the essence of who we are. I find that when these conversations, which are so much about the future and our rapidly evolving, technologically advancing society, we're actually also going back to some of these almost antiquated notions of soul. It is interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, ever since GPT came out, I've said, well, there you go. For years, in principle, we can get intelligent systems that verge on AGI and I think even surpass human intelligence in many ways. And it is a time that we need to really reflect on what conscious beings are in general and ask deep metaphysical questions, whether it be in the form of a soul you know, which is also a philosophical issue that philosophers like Descartes considered in a more agnostic tradition. And I think consciousness is really the root of the issue. Years ago, philosophers were asking, could machines be conscious? Could they feel experience themselves? Of course, they may not technically qualify as a form of life. That's a different debate. But maybe they have a felt quality. And, you know, similarly, I, I know a theologian 20 years ago who was asking, could a machine actually have a soul? Her name was Anne Forrest. You know, so these issues are important to consider for sure. And then I know you're working on another book, of course, since Artificial You and many projects, and you also are a director of the Center for the Future Mind. And so even though Artificial You came out in 2019, such as the case with technology, and as you say, chat GPT has come to market, and now we're seeing the products of what takes place behind the curtain. So how would you expand upon that? I think the questions themselves are timeless. And how do you think we can capitalize on generative AI to ensure responsible innovation? 
innovation for the benefit of all. I think the scientific possibilities are amazing. So even now I have a subscription to OpenAI and I'm getting the newer public version to, they call it GPT plus. And when you add in plugin, you can actually do much better research. In fact, I was at a very high level meeting of authors recently. It was a private meeting. Some of the biggest best-selling authors around and everybody is using it as a research tool. That doesn't mean people are letting it write for them. In fact, you know, I would be nervous about that for a lot of reasons. And also I just like putting things in my own prose, but it's a very good research assistant and there are plugins you can use to go through scientific papers quickly. You can get summaries of them. So if I was doing serious science, I would want access to a version that helps me in my own field. And I think any system that has these kind of capacity that it's basically a sort of crowdsourced brain, if you will. So it's roughly like the neocortex, very roughly. And it's a neocortex without a limbic system. So it's just an association engine without necessarily emotions, although that's another debate. And if you feed it the right sort of data, it has near instantaneous access to a range of facts. So it's going to come up with different things and it's going to be able to quickly access a range of material that humans can't. So there should be intriguing scientific discovery, drug discovery, obviously computation involving climate change. I mean, all kinds of things. And of course, this is true of symbolic systems as well. And nowadays, many machine learning systems are not just drawing from deep learning techniques. It'll take a while for those innovations in the experimental arena to actually be implemented in it. Obviously, you know, science is slow, but I believe that these sort of thinking machines, as they grow smarter and smarter, will change the face of science. Yeah. And the question is, I think at some point we would like to have this, you know, whoever's making the decision or deciding what's the best idea, that that might be the, the, the human element, because sometimes the decision, that's all like data. There's just you can drown in data, but then deciding or seeing with clarity might be like a human, have the human involvement in that. And I tried to square that with the realization I had. I feel my best ideas, they come about when I'm not doing effortful thinking, flow state or however you want to phrase it. I feel AI can be very intelligent, but it's almost the simplicity and the clarity and then the taking action. I feel like most myself when I'm not following the rules and logic, it just happens even quicker than that. For sure. The human brain is really interesting. And of course, it evolved maybe unlike AI systems that are, so to speak, intelligently designed, or maybe we want to say unintelligently designed by humans. So the evolutionary constraints on both systems are really different. And one thing that's very distinctive about humans is that conscious thinking is different from non-conscious attention. And consider learning to ride a bike. You're concentrating very deeply on it at first, but after a while, it becomes part of a non-conscious routine. So you'll be conscious of certain elements, but other elements are encoded there. And even though you're thinking and computing elements of riding the bike, a lot of it isn't even under your conscious awareness. It's not under the conscious spotlight. And it's like that for even intellectual tasks as they become more and more routinized. And so one thing about human deliberation is we have what we think are sparks of insight that are not computationally under our conscious awareness, right? But there's still nevertheless outgrowths of us. 
part of our learning process. And it's kind of a lovely feeling. And one of the things from an intellectual standpoint about writing and thinking is that it moves us into almost a meditative flow state because it can be really enjoyable for certain personalities. So I've really enjoyed the processes of thinking and writing. Yeah. And you can even just follow the music of it and then find out it makes sense as well as having a musical aesthetic pleasure to it. So with these possible benefits, and then we have our reservations, we have to think about AI governance, going into the ethical terrain, we already have these institutional foundations, which are already fractured, and then adding into the mix these powerful AI technologies. Who will own and control them? Is there a government involvement, individuals, corporations? What are we giving away when we give away our data or we ask things of chat GPT? How do we govern that if it's taking action or it's being used by powerful corporations or governments? How do we ensure that there is an ethical dimension to these expanded powers? Big question. I mean, I'm worried, obviously, even though I work with Congress and some of the leaders in the intelligence community, you know. There's work that's going on by AI companies, which may benefit humanity or may not, depending upon the AI regulation and the way that history plays out. And it's really hard to tell exactly what will go on. I worry that just, you know, nothing against tech leaders in particular, but if your number one concern is with your company, it will lead to a certain slant on how the technology plays out. And what we'd like to see is human flourishing being number one. And that's supposed to be the role of government to help regulate. And it's just not clear. I mean, I have two major concerns just to isolate things in a more tangible way. Okay. The first concern I have is with surveillance capitalism in this country. So the constant surveillance of us, which is going on right now as we're speaking on Zoom, I'm sure, and on all these background apps, and in my case, probably multiple foreign agencies because of what I do, you know, and and it may not be capitalism in those contexts, but I mean, basically I'm sick and tired as we all are of our technology basically spying on us. I shouldn't have to put a postage stamp on my camera all the time and think about my children feeding data into these machines. Now, I do understand that there's a lot of worry here that's underlying. It's not just nefarious actors. So the corporations need the data because it's a surveillance capitalist economy in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world, right? But there's a lot of worries about biological weapons and the misuse of these technologies. And so surveillance then becomes something necessary for government. So it's sort of a vicious mess web. And to people who sort of were libertarians who started seeing the public internet emerge in the days where the home computer really took off at the instant days. It was so exciting for them because they saw the internet as a place of freedom. And it's just in the last several years with Facebook and all these social media companies, things have just been going deeply wrong. And so it leads me to worry about how the future is going to play out right? I mean, the tech companies aren't going to be doing the right thing for humanity. So it's just a terrible web. And this gets to my second worry is how's this going to work for human exactly? So it may be great to see these large language models getting smarter and smarter. It's not clear though, where humans will even be needed in the future. So I've been worried a lot about technological unemployment as we replace a lot of white collar jobs, what will be left? What is it that will really be needed from biological systems like us? And, you know, obviously robotics is not as advanced. So it's not that I'm as worried about, say, 
contractor, you know, people who come into my house as electricians and their jobs and whatnot. But eventually robotics will be evolving quickly too. So what will the human future be exactly? Will it be a future akin to what I visit in the book, Artificial You, where humans aim to merge with artificial intelligences? I think there are some problems with that understanding of the future. Or would it be a future in which we're supplanted by non-biological organisms? I mean, that would be kind of spooky and scary. And it does worry me if they're not even conscious. And I, I don't think we have much of an understanding of what consciousness entails. So I suppose the these are sort of my distant concerns at this point. It's I think it's true. And even if they are conscious, it's a different consciousness, a machine consciousness. So it doesn't matter because it probably won't value our consciousness in the same way that we have treated animals poorly throughout our history. I've heard somebody said that, oh, maybe we would be like their dogs, their pets, and they wouldn't harm us. But, you know, I'm not sure if I want to be a dog. I, mean, I think that one of the most interesting things right now for me, with the, this new book I'm writing, is understanding the differences between humans and the AIs that we're creating today and trying to project into the future. And I think it's very important that we don't anthropomorphize, but that at the same time, we do learn from the mistakes of the past. But AIs may simply be vastly smarter than us, but not agential. They may not have aims or goals. They're, I mean, again, they're akin to neocortex. So even though there's a lot of Terminator concerns, and I've expressed them as well, it really depends on the kind of AI system. And it also depends on the actors, the use of these systems. So it's hard to tell exactly what the dangers are. But I mean, that's certainly one thing that we need to track that beings that are vastly intellectually superior to other beings may not respect the weaker beings given our own past. My name is Catherine Gross, and as a young climate journalist, and as we discuss the role of AI in technology, one of the things that particularly struck me about this interview with Susan Schneider is her thought experiment from the start of the book. If you were in 2045, and you knew that there was technology available that could grant you with certain abilities, such as increased mathematical prowess, a more relaxed personality, or even Mozart-level music abilities, do you take the opportunity to alter yourself? Or do you make an improvement to yourself? And can we even consider the adoption of this technology an improvement or advancement of human behavior, when really, it's the work of AI? I cannot help but think about these questions in relation to climate change, specifically in regards to gene-altering technology like CRISPR, which can make certain species more resilient to global warming-related changes in their environment. But with great power comes great responsibility. It's clear that humans have contributed to climate change, but is it our responsibility to permanently alter nature to try and fix our mistakes? Or should we step back? relinquish the anthropocentric sense of control we think we have over the world, a logic that contributed to this problem of climate change in the first place, and just hope that Mother Nature can adapt in time? These are questions that will become increasingly relevant as the point of no return with climate change gets ever closer. And now, back to the interview. 
And so you discussed the influence on elections we saw with Cambridge Analytics, and that's benefited far right governments in the UK and also in the US. Now, there's a potential for a greater granularity of feedback through using AI and its computational abilities. That's a slightly separate issue with Cambridge Analytics using the social media empowered by AI. So it could have a greater feedback because in America, there's still the Electoral College, which is ancient. It doesn't seem like it represents fully the population's old way of counting. So what are your hopes and how could it be governed so that it's not manipulating us? Good questions. So we need to get more accountability from the tech companies. And it does seem like companies like Facebook are being more mindful now because they're afraid of their reputations and they're afraid of government regulation and whatnot. So they don't want to see the same thing play out again. What we don't want is these amplificatory internet bubbles on these apps that encourage extremists, no matter what the topic is. So right, left, it doesn't matter. I mean, from an ethical standpoint, we want people to be truth seekers and we want communities of common-minded people to be acting on the right kind of information, right? I mean, an example that was really worrisome is these algorithms that move like a teenage female or even a male from dieting straight into the depths of eating disorders in these YouTube videos. Like we don't want people moving to a dark place. And so I'm hoping that there's a sensitivity to this issue now, but it needs regulation and there needs to be more transparency in what these algorithms are, exactly what they're doing. There needs to be cooperation. Now, I want to call your attention to two issues in particular here that I've been thinking about recently that I think as we move into the future, be mindful of. So recently I wrote a piece with Kyle Killian, who's a very interesting thinker. He's just done a master's thesis on complex systems and the interrelation of the different AI services. And we both started to worry a lot about how different AI services, like say Microsoft Bing and the latest incarnation of Google's LLM and various other aspects of the public internet would interact with each other. So you can align a singular system at the R&D stage, but when systems like these are released into the AI ecosystem, it's very difficult to tell what their impact will be because these are highly complex interactions. They're not very easy to calculate or anticipate. And if they interact poorly, then there's no one organization which is responsible and which can stop that kind of interaction. It has to be almost like a situation with global warming. There have to be global parameters and agreement. And so if the U.S. and China, for example, are seeing the AI ecosystem as a realm in which there should be cyber wars and hostilities, that's not good because our technologies need to play well with each other. So in the Wall Street Journal, Kyle Killian and myself wrote a piece about these, what we call AI mega systems made of AIs from different countries and different corporations that could in principle align and become agential. So my worry here is that there could be unforeseen alignments of the AIs themselves and that super intelligence could emerge from that in a shape that is very different from the kind of intelligence we see just at the level of the LLM. So I call this the AI mega system problem. And I do think it's sort of the next generation, if you will, of concerns about AI safety. And I don't see much attention on that issue in the older alignment literature, for example, which is really all about 
the genesis and prevention of a singular super intelligence system. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing that I'm also concerned with is this idea of these large language models being somehow the purveyor of truth. So a few months ago, Elon Musk declared that he was going to start a company that had an LLM that was designated as the true LLM. And he went on the Fox network and declared that and they took it a step further. They said it would be the sort of arm of right-wing orientation that you see on Fox and wouldn't be a PC orientation that you'd see on an LLM, say, generated by Microsoft. Now, that worried me deeply because the polarization that we're already experiencing actually throughout the globe, it's not good. If all we're doing is fighting over a few issues, we're not thinking about the future of humanity in its full detail. So we're not talking about certain topics and we're only focusing on a few. So people want to fight about race and gender all day to the exclusion of the range of issues. That's not productive. And it could be, sadly, that some benefit from distracting people and then it turns people off from these really important issues involving race and gender, too, because it makes people hostile and polarized. So I get worried if the LLMs become an arena for these amplificatory discussions. And then if in the sort of Elon Musk fashion, you're calling one LLM Proust engine. That's just not good. It, it also turns people away from the role of the nation state to the role of a technological entity that is an LLM, which is an unregulated arena. I mean, by no means am I thinking the world should always be one where there are nations. I'm not saying that. But right now, we don't want it to become, instead of a nation state, a leadership by a few people in yachts who own tech companies. You know, I don't think a Google world rather than an established world with the UN and nations is going to be an improvement. It looks to me like a springboard for an AI world where humans leave the loop entirely. It, to me, this is a very frightening arena. So I wrote a piece with Mark Bailey, who's a professor at National Intelligence University, a Nautilus on the question of these truth GPT engines. And I think there are a lot of really interesting epistemological issues here that still need to be worked out that I'm working out with a team at my center, a wonderful postdoc, Stephen Gupka, and then Garrett Mint, a junior faculty member very talented. So I'll be excited about the output of those projects. Indeed. And it seems clear to me that the humanities need to be at the heart of some of these discussions or even in somehow involved in the design process. Now, we've seen with tech companies for a long time, they've drawn on a brain trust of bringing in, say, neuroscientists and, and others who have given this, like yourself, deep thought into what consciousness is and how do we think and all these things. But using that, turning that knowledge then against people, how to manipulate people, how to gather attention and then sell that data. So how do you envisage a greater and more equal partnership with different members of the communities of scholars and the humanities in this design process? Because it's very clear we're not really involved and we don't know what's happening until it arrives on market. Yeah, it's been surprising to me how quiet things have been in the humanities. I mean, maybe we're all just taking it in, but I also think that, and this really makes me sad, the tech leaders have been looked at by the media and probably by the politicians themselves as being the important voices at the table for the implications of technology. And there's been a lot of confusion about 
scientific development versus speculation. So you're seeing everybody wanting to interview the CEOs of the big tech companies or the big AI researchers. And then all of a sudden the idea that they somehow have a monopoly on ideas about conscious machines, for example, or merging with AI like Elon Musk never stops with philosophical claims. And a lot of times you have to wonder what they're supposed to be doing for his stock values, as opposed to whether they're true or not. But people just take this sadly as what the scientists or AI companies say, you know, well, they know the science, so it's got to be true. But that is not the case. I mean, that's where the humanities should be more involved. And it's been a slow plotting situation to see people really step up. But you also, you know, as a writer, you want to make sure that you're not going to publish something which turns out to be false by the time it comes out. So maybe we're all like waiting to see where this all goes, right? But I think at this point, I'm, I finally achieved a sort of confidence about how I think it's going to play out. Well, also the tech company is notorious about not letting people behind the scenes, you know, so they're a little hostile. And I think that this kind of ethical commitment that scholars have not to be profiting from their knowledge makes it difficult, but it would be great to see more uh, account accountability and governance in, in that level that perhaps every tech company needs some humanities advisors. How strange is that? To really, you know, make sure that element is part of their, their mission. Um, well, and the tech advisors are bought by the companies and they're fired if they don't do exactly what the companies want. That's been the problem. So maybe something else mandated by government just to make sure because they're all pervasive and reaching every aspect of society. I, I think that would be great. You know, I, I feel grateful that I grew up at a time where I could actually trust what I saw was basically real. You know, there's conspiracy theories, but, but basically what I saw, I could know, oh, that's real. But now with the young generation, so many people that with what with deep fakes and facial recognition and augmented reality, the people just question like, what is their perception of the world? Can they trust their own eyes, their own ears? And also, I think there's a distrust of the major media outlet. They seem to all cohere in what they decide to amplify versus not talk about. And it just leads you to really wonder. I mean, if everybody's sitting around reading about a Harvard professor who believes that, you know, alien artifacts are present in the ocean, we wonder, like, why is this UFO thing, for example, being amplified so much? So it's weird how certain topics become part of what we might call the Overton window. That's been something discussed before. I think we have to really wonder, and I think it turns people off. They want to see more diverse reporting in the media, not just singling out a few issues. And then you also wonder, well, why is this being presented as so significant? Like, what's the objective here? Like, I just want news to be news. I just, I'm getting fed up. It's true. I just want facts because not enough news stuff. There's a lot of entertainment and as you say baiting because anger gets the most clicks. It's this bait to be had with aliens, you know, the possibility of aliens and whatnot. So that's why everybody, and then the reporters read the stories on the other side. And so everything's 
moving toward the lowest common denominator now. Thank God for high quality sites. But then quality sites are now being paywall. I, I don't mind paying for things that I value. That's important. I think yeah. the important thing is you have to know what you value and then move fr from that. And I think it, it goes to the fact that also when we're talking about artificial intelligence and super intelligence, uh, I also want to ask what is intelligence. But before we go on to that, I, I feel like sometimes it's about clarity and simplicity is intelligence. But you did mention the potential for AI and the new technologies to transform and accelerate change, mitigate climate change and on an environmental level. And I'm just imagining the future of cities, you know, how could AI help accelerate some of that change with the renewable technologies or the future of transport and education? And so many things are like up in the air at the moment. I don't want to talk about water, resources, food. It's vast, but how could AI be part of something positive? So it's exciting. And I think it's important that we remember all of these exciting elements. So for example, the detection of microbes could prevent pandemics in the future or at least minimize their transmission. A better understanding of the usages of resources can help minimize weight. So, you know, these kinds of technologies are already being utilized right now in smart city development and all kinds of exciting arenas. And as these models become more established and more sophisticated, the potential is very exciting. For example, cultivating healthy oceans, healthy environment. And, and I think it's important that we remember these wonderful possibilities that AI, together with human scientists, it's really the hybrid you know, connection between the human mind and the machine mind. But this collaboration is the most exciting element of machine intelligence, truly. And finally, as you think about the future and what perhaps you tell your own children and family or students, what would you like them to know, preserve and remember? I think people need to remember consciousness. I, I think it's the most central aspect of our existence. And I think we need to remember to appreciate that felt quality of experience and know what it is and know what it is not. So as we move forward and deliberate over the human future and graph machine intelligence and see it increasing and improving, we need to kind of understand what's distinctive about us. And I think having a better scientific and philosophical understanding of these questions is very important. Indeed. So we look forward to what you and your colleagues are doing at the Center for the Future of Mind and your own future publications. So thank you, Susan Schneider, for your important research into the future of AI and safety, existential risk, neuroscience, philosophy, and transhumanism, and just helping us understand what we value, where we're going, and to consider possible outcomes to ensure a positive future. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Catherine Gross. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support is by Sophie Gagné. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.